I want to call your attention now to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. And we'll read verse 30. Numbers 13, 30. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then we'll read also from chapter 14, verses 6 through 9. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. And may God bless to our hearts the reading of Holy Scripture. Here in Numbers 13 and 14, the people of Israel had been delivered by God's mighty hand from Egyptian bondage in that glorious exodus and crossing of the Red Sea, God's protection and provision for them. They had at Mount Sinai been newly formed Uh, into a nation, and now, a short time after, they were on their way to the land of promise, the land of Canaan, the land that the patriarchs had sojourned in and that God had promised them that their seed would inhabit, that they would own It would be a homeland to them someday. So they're on their way there. It had been many generations since any of the people of Israel had actually set foot in the land of promise. In fact, the last record that we have is many generations earlier when they took the bones uh, or, or, or took the, the body of Jacob back up to be buried there. And so none of them had uh, pictures to look at. None of them could ask a neighbor, what's the land of Canaan like? What does it look like? What, what kind of trees grow there? What kind of uh, bodies of water are there? And so on. 
And that's where we pick up here in Numbers 13 and 14. And I want to simply retell the story here in some detail and then make some application in a particular way to us. The story itself is, a, is an amazing story in these two chapters. God commanded Moses to send spies one from each of the 12 tribes, so there's 12 men who are going to go in to reconnoiter the land, to explore, to scout out, to bring a report back. And we see that in the beginning of chapter 13. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. So these, these were trusted, proven men that would go in to look at the land. And so uh, the names of, of the twelve are given there in the following verses. Moses goes on and gives them some further detailed instruction uh, in verses 17 through 20. He says, go up this way uh, in, into the south part of the, of the land. They were coming up from Egypt, from the south, and so they're to venture on into the southern part of the land of Canaan, which is on north. And he says, verse 18, see the land, what it is. And the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, they didn't know what they were facing and what to expect. He says, verse 19, see what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, and whether there be wood therein or not. Is, is it a desert or does it have trees? And be ye of good courage... And bring of the fruit of the land. It says, now the time was the time of first ripe grapes. The purpose of this mission was to know what lay ahead for them. So that when they got into that land, they would not be caught by surprise by anything. God had described it to them and described it to Moses previously as a land that was flowing with milk and honey. But obviously God wanted them to be better informed about the details of the land and what to expect. And I emphasize this point. This was God's instruction and God's mission that he sent them on. <clears throat> There's a lesson for us to learn in that. In the spiritual warfare that we face, we should know our enemy or enemies. Paul says in the New Testament to the saints at Corinth, if we are ignorant of Satan's devices, then he will have an advantage over us. And so we cannot afford to be ignorant of our enemy. We should not be unprepared we should not be taken captive by surprise. And in the words of Peter, we should be sober and vigilant, that is, careful or disciplined and watchful and awake 
prepared to fight the spiritual warfare. And we should resist our enemy steadfast in the faith who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so it's important to know our enemy and his methods and his his ways of attack and so on. So the spies were sent out. They got as far as a place called Hebron in the southern part of the land of Canaan. They gathered some very impressive fruit. Since it was the time of the first ripe grapes, they pluck a cluster and and bring it back, and it's so big it takes two men to carry it. That's explained there in verse 23. They have to carry it on a a pole uh, over their shoulders. Such an abundant uh, harvest of grapes there at that season. Well, you can imagine the the eagerness uh, of people back in the camp to see the return of these spies. They are anticipating. They want to know uh, what they're going to learn about this land that they are going to. All eyes are searching the horizon. Are they on their way back? What's taking so long? They've been gone uh, for several weeks now. When will they return? After 40 days. Here they come. Would you look at that cluster of grapes? Never seen anything like this. What a land this must be. What a place to call home. What a place to live. (coughs) And so the men draw near. You can imagine everybody gathering around. I don't know how they could all hear the report, but the the word got around somehow. It says in verse 26, They went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. They say, these spies that come back with the report say, This is the best ground we've ever seen. This is not like Egypt. This is not like anything we've ever seen. But then as soon as they have said that, there is this but, this nevertheless in verse 28. The people be strong that dwell in the land. And the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. Evidently, they'd already heard of reports of these children of Anak because they knew that they were giants. And they said, we saw them with our own eyes. Even the, the people of normal stature are strong and, and fighting kind of people. 
And the cities are fortified cities. They've got big, thick walls around them. And if that's not enough, there are giants there. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And so this is where verse 30 comes in. One of the spies, whose name was Caleb from the tribe of Judah, it says, stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb gives a very different kind of report. He gives an encouraging uh, admonition. He says, the land is ours for the taking. Let's go in. Let's not delay. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. These other spies shout down Caleb. They say, There's no way that we can take that land. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. They say, it's a dangerous place. It's going to be impossible to take that country. Those people are going to eat us for lunch. We saw these giants. They must have been ten feet tall. And compared to them, we look like grasshoppers. And they look at us like grasshoppers. We look like grasshoppers in their sight, and we look like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we go on into the next chapter, and we see this totally discouraged, disheartened, demoralized nation. It says, and all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. Oh, you can hear the moans and the cries and the shrieks in all of the tribes and all the tents scattered around the encampment. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. I mean, they go from, from sorrow and grief, perhaps to self-pity, and fear, and finally to anger. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness. But now these giants are going to come and kill us all. Wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? the place where they had been in such difficult bondage and rigorous and torturous labor. 
Time to go back to Egypt. They said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. We've got to run for our lives. Better to go back and be slaves to Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh was already drowned in the Red Sea, but there's a new one, no doubt. Well, Moses and Aaron plead with the people, verse 5. They fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And they, no doubt, were pleading, not just pleading with the people, but pleading with God for the people on their knees. And then we read these words in verses 6 through 9 that we read earlier, that not one but two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, like Moses and Aaron, are, are outraged at the unbelief of the people and the fear and the anger and the talk of going back to Egypt of all things. They tore their clothes and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for we will eat their lunch. (laughs) They are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. The Lord's not with them. Fear them not. God is able to give us the land. He's promised to do so. He promised Abraham. He promised Isaac. He promised Jacob. With God's enabling, we can conquer this land. We can conquer these giants. Don't be afraid. Don't rebel against God. (coughs) Notice their their defense is departed from them. That matches something that we see 40 years later when Rahab says to the, the two spies that came to Jericho, She says, the whole land is trembling and quaking because of what we heard your God did at the Red Sea. That was 40 years earlier. And while these people of Canaan appeared so strong and uh, threatening, the truth is, inwardly, as soon as they hear of what God had done for the people of Israel, they're quaking, they're afraid. They're intimidated, but they, they try to hide it and look so strong and mighty. I want you to notice, by the way, that the optimism of Caleb in chapter 13, verse 30, that is just very briefly stated is explained in more detail here in these verses in chapter 14 that we just read. His optimism was grounded in God. It wasn't just self-confidence. It was if the Lord delight in us, if the Lord is pleased to do this, 
and no doubt he was because he'd promised to do so, then he will give us this land. Well, next we see in verse 10, the people dig in their heels. We might say they doubled down and they said, we're not listening to these two men. We're not going to listen to any more from Joshua and Caleb. And we're going to shut their mouths permanently if we have to. All the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. God displayed his glory in such a stunning way that it kept them from laying a hand upon or casting a stone at Caleb or Joshua or Moses or Aaron. And I'll just have to summarize here. In verses 11 through 19, we see that God threatens to destroy the whole nation right here and now. He says, Moses, I'll destroy them all and I'll save you and make a whole new nation to come from you. Moses, of course, intercedes for them and says, Lord, don't do that. Lord, be merciful and patient with this nation for the sake of your testimony to the nations around. So God answers the prayer and the intercession of Moses, but he pronounces this sentence in You can read it if you're not familiar with it when you go home, verses 20 through about 35 of this chapter. But he says, all of the adults that are older than 20 years old will die before I bring this people into the land of Canaan. And because they have rebelled against me and not believed in me and my power to accomplish this conquest of the land of Canaan, I'm going to leave them right where they are for 40 years between Egypt and Canaan, wandering around in these desert areas, one day or a one a year for each day that the spies were in the land they were in the land 40 days so it'll be 40 years and then he says only then will the younger generation go in and possess the land and immediately the lord sent a judgment upon the 10 spies that brought the the discouraging and unbelieving report says that they died by the plague before the Lord, verse 37. But God spared these two spies, Joshua and Caleb. Then the next thing we see is that in order to avoid these 40 years of death, the next day the people say, well, we're going to go on in. We, we, we think we will attack after all. And they go in and engage against the Amalekites and they are defeated and end in failure and shame. The Lord had made the pronouncement upon them and he was not going to go with them now into the land of Canaan. It would be in 40 years that he would go with them. So that's the fascinating and important story. Let me make this application As believers and as a church, we are the army of the Lord. 
And we face giants today. Every generation of believers has faced giants. And we are no exception. We see then something of ourselves here in these chapters that we have looked at. And thank God there are some dislikenesses. Israel went armed with a temporal sword. We are armed with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Israel went to destroy the lives of men. We go to save the souls of men or to bring the tidings of salvation. Yes, the tidings that the people of Israel brought to the Canaanite nations was a message of destruction and displacement. The message that we bring to the lost today is a message of great joy and hope and redemption if they will turn from their sins and believe on Christ. The reward for the Israelites was cities and houses and fields and vineyards, crops, herds, and so on. The reward that we look forward to is a crown of souls who will be in the presence of Christ at his coming, Paul says, to the Thessalonians. So there are some dissimilarities, but we see so many parallels here in spiritual warfare. Now, we face giants today. Some of our giants are coming into clearer focus in these days. We must never forget that we ultimately fight against Satan and demons, principalities and powers in high places. Paul says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these powers in heavenly places. And we must never forget that. Our ultimate enemy is Satan and other fallen angels with him. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But I take what Paul says there in Ephesians 6.12 to mean that we do not face flesh and blood alone. After all, Paul did certainly face flesh and blood every time that he was stoned and beaten and imprisoned, didn't he? Flesh and blood becomes the earthly face of Satan. Earthly powers become the the face of And the hands, we might say, of Satan and his demons. Evil powers in high spiritual places employ evil powers in high earthly places to oppose the truth 
and to war against God and against his people. And just as God did not want the Israelites to be caught by surprise in their warfare, we should not be ignorant of what Satan is doing in the world in which we presently live. And I was tempted to extend the length of this message and, and spend a, a quite a lengthy time on talking about many different aspects of attack against God and against His truth and against His law and against His gospel that are going on today. But we don't have time for that. But I would just emphasize this point. We cannot deny the existence of the earthly dimension of Satan's tactics. And while the the conflict is ultimately spiritual, it takes an earthly dimension. And we are seeing, just in way of summary, a desperate and escalating multi pronged attempt to make the human race self-destruct globalist powers more resemble the tower of babel today than probably at any time on earth since genesis chapter 11 Their policies are destructive, ruinous, suicidal. It makes no sense. It's irrational. It's controlled demolition of the world and the human race. There is corruption at all levels and at all, in all spheres of society. When's the last time you heard any good news other than from God's word? God's truth and God's people on earth and God's institutions that he has established in this world stand in the way of this tower of Babel that's being rebuilt to ultimately control and destroy And so, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you become a target of Satan and his helpers, even his helpers on this earth. Make no mistake, the ultimate target is God. But the way that Satan and his helpers Attack God is by attacking his people in any given generation. And while freedom generally is under attack, it is biblical Christianity that is especially singled out for destruction. And anything that leads or encourages the, the, the message of Christianity or that conduces to it or anything, any goodness that flows from it is hated 
and is slated for destruction. The noose in the hand of the giants of today is tightening around our necks day by day. Freedoms are more in jeopardy and are being more and more lost. Truth is being more and more opposed and suppressed. We might say canceled. Lies are more and more propagated. And the goal is is obvious. It's to hinder the purpose of God in the earth. It is to deny him the glory that is due to him. Satan wants to destroy what God has made and he wants to put God to shame. And so he has his giants at work in this world, in our generation. And there's so many of them and they're in so many fronts and so many places and seats of power that we can hardly number them all and keep up with them. So, what are we to do? Well, this is where our text is helpful. Like the 12 spies that went in, we see the giants. What are we to do about them? And every one of us who is a believer in Christ will see ourselves in these spies. We will see ourselves either in the ten or the two. Remember, all twelve of them saw the same land of Canaan. They saw the same cities with thick walls. They saw the same giants. But they reacted differently to these things. Ten spies saw nothing but obstacles. Two saw God's power over the obstacles. Ten of the men were afraid and were paralyzed. Two of them feared God and so were emboldened to spring into action and to tackle the challenges in front of them. Ten were hopeless pessimists. Two had a bold hope and confidence in God. Ten were demoralized and intimidated. Two were strengthened. Two had already in their minds turned the tables of intimidation, as I pointed out as we read, instead of saying they're going to eat us alive, they said we'll eat them alive, figuratively. Ten, notice this in chapter 13 and verse 33, ten measured themselves by the giant's size. 
And so they said, we're grasshoppers. Two, however, measured the giants by God's size. And what happened? Those giants looked like grasshoppers compared to God. Ten saw themselves as their enemies saw them. They came to have the perspective of their enemies concerning themselves. They said, we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. You know, when you start thinking like your enemies, you're in trouble. Dear Brother Paul Brown pointed that out from this text many years ago. But the other two saw themselves as God saw them. We are the people of God. We are the army of the Lord. And with his power, we can conquer. Again, ten of these men said something like this. Death, or I'm sorry, defeat is certain. So there's no reason to fight at all. There's no way that we can win. The outcome is obvious. Any effort is a waste. The cause is is already lost before we've even begun. And this spirit of defeat went viral through the nation. And they influenced everybody else. I'll tell you. It, it is spiritually contagious to be discouraged and disheartened. And we see that here. On the other hand, Joshua and Caleb said in so many words, God is with us. He's not with them. Yeah, they have giants, but we have the bigger giant. We have the giant who is so much bigger than them that they are like dwarves in his sight. God has not brought us out of Egypt to abandon us now. He has promised to give us victory. Victory, therefore, is as certain as the character of God himself. Yes, there are giants. We're not denying they are giants and that they are there and that they must be overcome and but they must somehow fit with God's plan. And so we must go in and fight them. And God will see to it that they fall. And I think it's so beautiful to see Caleb 40 years later at the age of 80. And, and so that obviously means he was about 40 here at this time. At the age of 80, in Joshua chapter 14, he still had fight in him. And I don't know if this was, you know, a little overly um, stated or if God had miraculously extended his, his vigor of youth, but he declares there in Joshua 14... I'm as fit for battle today as I was 40 years ago. 
And so this mountain that has not yet been taken, let me have it. Let me fight that battle. And listen, that kind of spirit is contagious also. In fact, comparing chapter 13 with chapter 14, in chapter 13 uh, and verse 30, Caleb is the only one that speaks. In chapter 14 and verse 6, Joshua and Caleb speak. And I think we have a hint here that Caleb's uh, courage infected Joshua. Now, which one are you? Are you the ten or the two? How do you react to the giants of today? And the more attention you pay to current events and the more you know, the more it tends to be distressing and, and, and overwhelming. So what do you do? Do you give up in fear? Do you surrender without a fight? Do you say there's no use doing anything because the giants are too big for us? Any effort is a wasted effort. There's no use doing anything. Or to use the words of a parable of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only thing for us to do is to take our talent and bury it in the earth till Jesus comes. Is that the kind of attitude that you have that is going to affect others and discourage others as well, like a plague? Or are you a Joshua and a Caleb who trusts in God, who keeps God in view in the perspective of the giants and all these difficulties that we face today. Listen, friends, our generation desperately needs Caleb's. We all must be Caleb's now. And we must remember our God and have confidence in him and know that we serve a God that is greater than all of these formidable giants before us. According to Psalm 2, our God looks down from heaven upon earth and upon all these giants and their schemes and their conspiracies against him. And what does he do? He laughs. He laughs. And we as the earthly people of this laughing God must rise up in the strength of God and rise to the occasion before us in our generation and face these giants. Generally speaking, here in in Western 
civilization. We have gotten soft, and especially here in the United States of America, we have gotten soft with friendly governments and civil protections in years past. But all that has changed. And it continues to change. And we must not panic. And we must not cower and hide. And we must not retreat or go back to Egypt, as it were. We must go forth boldly and fight the battles of the Lord and engage the enemy in the, in, in the strength of our God and with our big gun of gospel truth and all of the sane thinking that accompanies gospel truth applied in all areas of life. In the words of, uh, again, the parable in the New Testament, the Lord's words to us are, Occupy till I come. He doesn't say hide. He doesn't say retreat. But occupy. Hold the ground. Carry on. And we must not then be like the one who hid his talent in the earth, but like those who invested them and used them and occupied and carried on. Beloved, now is the time to move forward in the battle for truth. Times of great danger are times of great duty. Times of great opposition are times of great opportunity. And we as a church have a role to play in God's purpose now. It may not be a big role, but it may be an important one, more than we know. But God gives each of us a part of the battlefield to hold and to occupy. And yes, to advance from. We do not know how he may bless and use our efforts. We don't have the specific promise of the conquest of Canaan that the people of Israel had. But we do have God's promise that he will honor the efforts of his people in the way that is most pleasing in his sight. And so we can be certain that according to his promise, he will help us. And listen, just a knowledge of of inspired history, a knowledge of the history of the nation of Israel, a knowledge of the New Testament church history, a knowledge of of the history of the New Testament church since the writing of the New Testament is full of example after example of how that God in, in the most, when his people were in a most extreme circumstance gave victory and deliverance by the faithful efforts of a few 
But preacher, I might die as a martyr. Yes, you might. But those who die a martyr's death may die in the comfort of knowing that the cause of God for which they lay down their lives will finally win. It's not a a death in vain. All who die in battle will have had a part in the final victory in the war. And the way God has worked this thing out with the the, the principle of the resurrection at the last day, those who die in the Lord's battles will live again to see and, and enter into the glory of the final victory celebration. I wish we had time to read there in Second in, in Timothy, Paul's last letter. Things are bleak. He's about to be to be uh, to die as a martyr himself and have his head taken off in in Rome by Caesar. And yet he says that the foundation of God stands sure. And it's a winning cause. Now, you may say, well, what can I do? Let me answer that as quickly in a few points as I can. The first thing I would say is be a consistent Christian. This is a message for believers and not for unbelievers today, but I would say this to unbelievers. If you're not a believer, you need to believe. You need to come to Christ and be a Christian and get on the winning side of this thing. The best thing in a way, and the first thing, but I'll mention one more thing at the end that might even supersede this. But the first thing that we can and must do is be a consistent Christian 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Set an example for those around you that is worth following. Be salt and light wherever you are in your home, with your family, in your church, and in society, in your neighborhood, on your job. Be faithful in little things. And in the words of our Lord in the New Testament, If you're faithful in little things, you'll be a ruler over many things. What can I do? Talk about God to those around you. Speak of God's law and God's gospel in appropriate proportions according to the need that presents itself. Get a word in edgewise. If you can only get a word in, then get it in. Speak while you can. Let others know. Don't hide your faith. Let others know that you believe in God. And that you will believe in Him if nobody else does. 
Use your influence. Again, in your family. In society. Some of you may want to try to use your influence in some office. I heard of a pastor recently who's a good, sound man who is uh, running for state senate. Well, God bless him. I, I think it's a step down from the pulpit to the senate, but if he can maintain both somehow, more power to him. We have a system of government in which we can influence those who are in office over us. We can petition. And, man, it's so easy to sign petitions. I sign some every week, it seems like, that are online and so on for whatever they're worth, whatever they accomplish. What can I do? Don't be afraid of anyone or anything but God. If you fear God, you don't have to be afraid of giants. And to kind of tweak a a common saying, courage is not the absence of fear. It is overcoming your fears with the fear of God. What can I do? Do all to stand. Stand no matter what. Refuse to waver. Refuse to surrender. What can I do? Have holy confidence in God and be joyful and peaceful in the midst of a sad and panicking world. That's a powerful testimony in itself. Listen, if you're just as afraid and wringing your hands as those who don't know the Lord, then why should they listen to anything you say about the Lord? It hasn't made any real difference, has it? If God is laughing, should we always be mourning? As the hymn writer says, I can smile at Satan's rage and face a frowning world. In other words, Be cheerful. Don't be discouraged. Refuse to give discouragement a place. And I'm not talking about self-confidence, but humble dependence upon Christ. Let us encourage one another in the cause of Christ and in various efforts and You know, Christ sent out his disciples two by two. And there's an example there of coordinating our efforts. Together as a church, let us be ready for what new tasks the Lord may have for us. And he may have some for us in the near future. Last of all, and this is what could arguably be at the top of the list, what can I do? Be proficient with the secret weapon of prayer. 
Never forget there's a spiritual dimension to this. It's not just flesh and blood. Paul didn't go and attack the ones who were stoning him. He understood that those stones were coming from human hands behind which there was the hand of the archenemy, Satan. And so, inasmuch as it's a spiritual battle and we fight with spiritual weapons, prayer is our weapon. Let us pray in our closet. Let us pray with our family. Listen, pray with your church. If you can come to prayer meeting on Wednesday night, come. If there are other times that we can pray and meet and pray, let's do. When there are coordinated seasons of prayer, let us participate if possible. And I'll just say this, there's a, there are some good sovereign grace Baptist men across the country who have called for a day of fasting and prayer for revival a week from this Tuesday, beginning at 8 p.m. and going until 8 p.m. the following day, Wednesday, the 4th of October. And I hope to participate in that, and, and I'll remind you of it again next week. But this is our secret weapon that God has given us in the battle against our giants. So, you've been patient here today. I'll close with this. The battle is getting hotter. The giants are getting bigger. But we can't go back to Egypt. And there's literally no place to hide. You think you can hide in a cocoon you know, on a hundred acres in the middle of nowhere. No, the surveillance is global. The only option is to stand and fight where we are. And with God's help, we can win and we must win and we shall win that's the spirit of Caleb that I hope will be uh, with us and infectious around us now. And listen, don't fall into the, the, the thinking that, well, the battle's over or the war is over, that there's nothing... Nothing left for us to do. Listen, it's not over. There's a lot. In a, in a temporal sense, there is a lot that is yet to be decided. And this is time for us to arise and advance. And so as much as I can today, I would sound the charge. <laughs>